All right, everybody, Ian has said that we are ready to go, so that's when we go. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, please open to Daniel chapter 7. <clears throat> if you are here last Sunday, we covered the first, about the first half of Daniel 7, and it's one of those chapters that is so just, if you're not used to reading apocalyptic literature, which is what the second half of Daniel is, it is very strange upon a first reading, upon the first five readings, it's a little strange still. And uh, so we, last Sunday we covered the vision that Daniel has himself, this apocalyptic vision of the future kingdoms and eventually um, the Son of Man coming. That's where we finished last week was when he's finished the vision. And then the second half of the chapter is Daniel asking an angel for more clarification about what he saw in that vision and what it means. So we're really covering a lot of the same ground from last week, but there will, I hope, be a little bit more detail and clarity, and one of the things that will be more emphasized is this fourth kingdom and the little horn of the fourth kingdom who, uh, spoiler alert, ladies and gentlemen, we believe is the Antichrist. So the Antichrist is a pretty prominent role in this chapter, uh, and uh, it's the first time he appears in the, in the biblical canon, is, is in this chapter here in Daniel 7, and he's picked back up on in the New Testament several different times. So with all that being said… Uh, I'm going to go ahead and read the first 14 verses of the chapter, and then I'll ask Papa Fred to pray for us. Daniel 7, this is God's Word, first 14 verses. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear, it was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots, and behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things." As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened." I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom." that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Papa Fred, can you pray for us? Father God, thank You for the opportunity to gather this afternoon and open 
chapter 7 of uh, Daniel. And um, Daniel's perplexed right after the verses that uh, Mark read. Um, he was anxious. Uh, he was alarmed. Um, and, and this was Daniel. This is the same Daniel that, that uh, had endured this uh, Babylonian captivity for a very, very long time and uh, had served under multiple rulers and kings. And yet what he saw alarmed him. And sometimes we get that way about uh, apocalyptic literature. Lord, you give us so much hope and confidence uh, in this chapter about the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man um, reigning and ruling forever and ever. And so as we uh, exposit the text this afternoon, I pray for your spirit to give us fresh insight, um, direction, guidance, uh, as we properly teach your word. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. So if you remember from uh, last time we mentioned this, Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, is the, those are the first and last chapters in Daniel written not in the normal language of the Old Testament. If you remember this, so the, normally the Old Testament is written in which language? It is Hebrew. That's vast majority of the Old Testament is in Hebrew. But Daniel 2 through 7 is written in Aramaic, which is a little bit unusual. And chapters 2 and 7, the first and last Aramaic chapter, are extremely similar. Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the, 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 the statue with the gold head representing Babylon, the silver chest area and arms, uh, I think personally representing uh, the Medo-Persian Empire. Then you have bronze thighs, that's representing Greece, Alexander the Great's Greece. And then you have the iron and clay mixed feet, which I believe is Rome and beyond, Rome and the coming kingdoms after Rome. In Daniel 7, you have the same description, but it's using a different metaphor. Instead of the images of metals going down from the top, it is four different animals. The lion-like animal in verse 7 with wings that was given the mind of a man, parallels Nebuchadnezzar. Lions were a very symbolic animal in Babylon, and the mind of a man and a beast is what Nebuchadnezzar himself went through. The second beast was like a bear. It was raised up on one side, and we mentioned this previously, but if you look at chapter 8, not to distract you too much here, but in chapter 8, you get more detail on these middle two kingdoms, which I believe are Medo-Persia and Greece, led by Alexander the Great. But if you look at verse 3 of chapter 8, it says, I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. Now, I believe that ram in chapter 8, this is going to get confusing. Are you ready? I believe the ram in chapter 8 is the same as the bear in chapter 7. Now, look at the ram in chapter 8. Verse 3, a ram standing on the bank of the canal, it had two horns, and both horns were high, but one horn was higher than the other. Do you see how that's similar to a bear that's raised on one side? In both, you're seeing this idea of one side being higher than the other out of a two. Right, so the bear is raised on one side, which is unusual because bears are normally not going to be raised on one side. And then you have another animal here. One horn is higher than the other. And if you look down uh, further in verse 20 of chapter 8, it tells you explicitly. So there's no, there's no question what's going on here. Look at verse 20. As for, this is chapter 8, verse 20. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. Now, do you see how clear that is? Why was one horn higher than the other? Because the Persians were more mighty than the Medes. So when the Medes and Persians came together, they were disproportionately one kingdom. And I think just like one horn's higher than the other, but they both represent the Medes and the Persians, the king of Media, the king of Persia, so in chapter 7, verse 5, the bear raised up on one side is the same thing. It's the Median, Median, Median Persian Empire, and one side is more prominent or higher up than the other. 
I know this is weird stuff, guys. This is apocalyptic. We're not, this is not Romans, okay, where you're just like basic justification. This is very strange picture language, but I do think that that's Medo-Persia there, the bear raised on one side, devouring much flesh with, uh, with ribs between its teeth. Look at uh, chapter 7, verse 6. You've got here another animal, a leopard, with four wings on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. Now, this, okay, a leopard is obviously a very quick and powerful animal. To have four wings on its back represents the immense speed with which this thing can dominate other creatures. I think Greg mentioned, how terrifying would it be you're walking down the street and a leopard with four wings appears? You'd be, uh, get me out of here is what you would be saying. You don't, you don't want to face that. It's symbolic, it's a symbolic picture to say this kingdom has unbelievable speed like a leopard with four wings. It's unimaginably powerful. Well, Alexander the Great conquered the world in, what, like a decade. I mean, he, he did this in an unimaginably short period of time. There's this, the legend has it that uh, when Alexander was Younger than me, he wept because there were no kingdoms left to conquer. He had already done the whole thing. He had conquered the whole world, and he died young at 32 years old in the year 323 B.C. But I believe that's what's being described in that leopard uh, animal there. And then the, the last beast in verse 7 of chapter 7. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. Now stop here for a second. Do you remember the, the four metals? From the, from the four kingdoms of Nebuchadnezzar's statue. The gold was first, silver, bronze, and then what? Iron, iron. mixed with clay. This has got to be the same kingdom, right? It's the fourth in the line of four, and it ends with iron. Just like in chapter two, the fourth in the line of four ends with iron, right? It's got to be the same thing. This is, we, we believe, in. one commentator, Joe Sprinkle, and there's others who've said the same thing. Shriner, Tom Shriner, uh, others have said similar things. I believe the best way to look at this last kingdom is to call it with hyphenated words, Rome and beyond. The reason I say that is because Rome's gone today, right? Rome is over. There is no Roman kingdom in the way we think of it, like the ancient Roman Empire. But Revelation says that this kingdom's full reign is going to come in the future around the time of the return of Christ, that Jesus will crush this, this beast when he returns. We're told that also in Daniel 7. And if the Roman Empire is gone, I think the best way to look at this is Rome and beyond. In other words, these are all the lost, wicked empires of the world that culminate in a final wicked empire that I do believe is led by the Antichrist. So if that sounds strange to you, if that sounds hokey, like this idea, you believe in it, I believe the Bible teaches an Antichrist, a man of lawlessness, a man of, a son of perdition, who will exalt and oppose himself against all so-called gods and objects of worship. He will be some kind of prominent leader at the end, and when Jesus returns, he will kill, 2 Thessalonians 2 says, he will kill the man of lawlessness by the breath of his mouth and bring him to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Jesus will. So I believe that Roman beyond is a good way to think about this last beast. And it's, it's, we, we see the beast in many forms throughout history. Like we've mentioned Hitler and Stalin and Mussolini. You have all these people throughout history where you see beast-like empires. But there will be an ultimate one uh, that Jesus will destroy upon his return. And that's why we refer to it as Rome and beyond. So thoughts on, this is very odd perhaps to a lot of us, what, thoughts on this section. I think that... Um... Sometimes we can get focused, for example, too much on the Antichrist, yeah. and that's happened throughout history. Uh, even Jesus, um, in his Olivet Discourse, indicated that, there, uh, that the end was, uh, at the very end, you'd have the son of perdition, uh, the Antichrist, revealed. Uh, a lot of people thought it was Antiochus Epiphanes, and he gets the rap. And he did a lot of really super bad things. But he was a type of Antichrist. Hitler would be the type. Stalin, Mao, and anybody else you can think of in history that were ruthless rulers. 
instead, Dan, Daniel's, you know, it's fascinating. He's sitting here at the apex of history. He's got the, some of the greatest empires uh, around him. He's served at least two of those empires. Uh, and yet he's looking off to the future. No wonder he is a little perplexed and a little alarmed by all of this because these four beasts that arise out of the, uh, out of the ocean, they're ferocious. The, the beasts that are described in, in chapter two in the statue, they're just simply kingdoms. Now we learn that they come out and they're terrorizing the world. They're full of chaos and destruction and sin and blasphemy. And, and so it's quite a contrast between the, the, the vision of the statue and, and, and these visions. And so. I know I've mentioned this already probably two weeks in a row, but again, with a guy like Putin in Russia, you, you are seeing, so think of the Russian army as being the beast-like figure and the leader of that being Putin himself. Right. That, that's the kind of metaphor that you're seeing in the Bible. So um, the, the, you'll have a horn on a beast, which the horn represents the king or the leader, and the beast represents all the military power and all the economic power that that empire has. That's the kind of language. Sometimes you can speak of the, the leader representing the whole, and sometimes you can speak of the whole as being embodied in the leader, but they go together because the leader obviously is the one calling the shots on what those empires do uh, going into the future. Let's look at a couple of verses here we did not focus on last time. So still in verse 7, middle of verse 7, it had iron, great iron teeth. So we believe this is Rome and beyond. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one. So this, I believe, is the first mention of the Antichrist in the Bible, verse 8, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. So th this leader is unbelievably arrogant and self-centered. We will find out later he essentially thinks of himself as being a deity. He thinks of himself in God-like terms. He is the all-powerful one. He is the one that sets the rules. He calls the shots. If he doesn't want you to worship God according to your religion, he will say your religion is illegal and he will persecute you for, for doing that thing. And again, here's why it's important. You're exactly right, Fred. People, lots of times we've overemphasized in Christian culture stuff like the Antichrist. In who, our churches... Who is he? Yeah, 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 like trying try to figure out who he is and what, what, what it may be. But I, I will say, whether or not we live to see the actual Antichrist, I have no idea. I've said before, Jesus could come back in a, in a very short time. He could also come back 5,000 years from now because a day is like 1,000 years, and 1,000 years is like the, a day. Jesus has been gone for two days, right? 2,000 years is two days for Jesus. He, could, he can wait five more days if he wants to. So we have no way of predicting or calculating the return of Christ. Jesus says, no one knows the day or the hour. And so that's certainly true. Here's why it, it, this is in Scripture in Daniel. It's in Second Thessalonians. I believe it's in Revelation 13. It's also in First and Second John. Why is this talked about? Because even if I and you, even if you and I never lived to actually see the final decisive antichrist, which is certainly very, if not probable, very possible that we will not live to see that. Either way, what does 1 John say? There are many antichrists who have come into the world, and the spirit of the antichrist is already at work. He said that in the first century AD. So here's why we study this. It's not because we want to have our end time charts out and be predicting, okay, the European Union is definitely the 10 kings. It's like, oh, no, 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 no. no let's, let's be extremely slow to start naming what's what, because the prediction books have to edit themselves about every decade. You can see these prediction books from like the 1970s and 80s. They actually list the leaders of the European Union and say, these are the guys that are the 10 horns, and we know that the antichrist figures 
going to come from over here. And the, well, then what happens when the European Union is no longer 10 or when the, when the numbers mess up or when the, the leaders change? No joke. There's actually books that have been written where the author goes back and changes the names of all the leaders to update them because 10 years later, they've, been, they've died and been replaced. Do so you realize we need to be very cautious. In fact, I would just say, don't try to assign specific things like that about the future. You're going to get yourself into some serious uh, trouble. And so far, every single prediction has been incorrect because as the book, my favorite book of all time, I think, that's a slight exaggeration, is um, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Come Back in 1988. That's a classic. I was, I was, I turned one when that book came out and uh, the book was had 88 reasons, and every single one of them was incorrect. <laughs> so that book, you can buy it for an, an exorbitant price on eBay, I think, right now. But uh, it's out of print. I don't know why it's out of print. But anyways, that, be, be very careful about labeling precisely what every detail exactly is going to indicate. Here's what we need to learn. Alistair Begg, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. Here's what we need to, we need to know. The final Antichrist figure is described several times in Daniel. In this chapter, we're going to look at several more texts and several times the New Testament. We need to get to know what his style is like so that the little lowercase a Antichrists that are all over the place from the first century through now, we got to be prepared for those Antichrists because those Antichrists are always, on, always in the world. Throughout all of Christ's inter-advent period, between his first and second coming, there are antichrists all over the place. This might look like a liberal professor who rejects the inerrancy of Scripture and is teaching against the doctrines of Christ, but is doing it with a PhD in theology. That would be an antichrist figure. First uh, John says they went out from us because they were not really of us. They've rejected the true gospel, and he calls them antichrists, with lowercase a in that sense as we would think of it. So we, it's not so much that we're thinking we're going to meet the antichrist ourselves, that's possible. But we need to get to know how this Antichrist is going to work so we can spot his messengers in the here and now in this world. And that is crucially relevant to how we live our lives. That, that, that absolutely does uh, make a, a big difference to how we live. So let, let me continue here. Verse, verse 8. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in, the, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. Now, I'm just going to skip ahead to the next time we hear about the horn. Verse 11, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. That is the empire in some sense led by this figure is going to be destroyed at the return of Christ and sent to burn with fire, which Revelation 19 describes. Well, let me just mention verse 12 because it's a little confusing and then I want to hear from you guys here on this. Verse 12, as for the rest of the beasts... That would be the other empires, I believe, is, is a good way to possibly interpret that. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged or had been prolonged for a season and a time. I do not want to be dogmatic on this because it's very hard to know for sure. But here's a possible me interpretation of, of verse 12. What that could mean is that each time one of those four kingdoms was conquered by the next one, their dominion was taken away, but in a sense they lived on through the next beast that came after it. This is why I think... In Re remember last week we looked at Revelation 13? Remember the beast, the final beast in Revelation 13, has the characteristics of which of these four empires? All four of them. Do you remember that? It's because their dominion as it's being taken away, they're still in some sense living on in this final beast-like figure. And so perhaps that is what is being described in verse 12. But thoughts on this section? Yeah, well, well, I don't even know if one of the things I would say at the, at the beginning here for me, uh, I, it's helpful to remember the big picture, like you're saying, Mark. Like we can get so 
fixated on whatever the, the horns or whatever all these are. And even Beg, when he, when he got all involved in it, he, he said he thought he had the 10 horns figured out because he was into it. And he said then there was like 11 in the European Union or whatever it was. He's like, he scrapped it all. Like, you got to keep the main things, the plain things. So like a big picture thing, one of, one of the guys I listened to, it was sort of right when COVID hit. It was maybe in May of that year in 2020. And he was supposed to go to Texas to, to preach and he couldn't. So then he had, they had to film it. And in his message at the very beginning, like in his prayer and in his opening comments, he just, he was so thankful. He said in these uncertain times, he said, I'm so thankful that we have, we have the rock of the word. We have the word of God that is true and certain that we can go to. I just thought what a great word that was for a reminder for us, even as our culture declines, we have the rock of the word. We know what the future holds. I mean, here in Daniel 7, we see the future, like God's in control on the throne. So we should be so thankful that we have the rock of the word to stabilize us, to give us hope and strength. But I come back to, to this vision, which I know I'm skipping ahead a little bit to that vision. I can't get past that vision uh, that he gets of the throne room of God and the Son of Man. How I said last time, Colossians 3 said we're supposed to set our minds on things above. Well, I had never thought that about this before, but here's a way we can do that practically. Come to Daniel 7, camp out here on these verses. There you're dwelling on things above by, by seeing the throne room of God. But multiple people talked about how our gaze should be lifted here to the throne of God. And it's just a couple different people. Our gaze must always penetrate beyond the terrible events of history to the throne of God. We need a vision of God seated on his throne. And then uh, one pastor said, Daniel 7 reminds us of how important it is to keep sight of the big picture. We can too easily focus on our immediate circumstances, an election, an economic downturn, a career disappointment, a family dispute, but we need to, we need to go up to the, to the throne room of God. It was like the two screens that one guy said, we need that top screen, the throne room of God. But Brian Chappell just was so good here. He said, he said these two things. He said, awareness of both our personal rescue and God's eternal purposes are necessary to maintain daily faithfulness. So on the one side, awareness of our of our personal rescue. This is something that we emphasize a lot at our church. We, we need to remember the gospel. We need to remember that God has intervened in our life. He's saved us. He's transformed us. That's got to be central. We've got to preach that to ourselves, remind each other of that in order to maintain ordinary faithfulness. But then we also need this picture uh, of the throne room of God, God's eternal purposes. And this may be the side that we maybe don't dwell, dwell on as much, but Daniel 7 is a great way to go and see God's eternal purposes. Like you said, like verse 11, it talks about how the beast is going to be killed. Like one guy said, Whatever the identity of this boastful horn, there is no question of his destiny. He is executed and his body is thrown into blazing fire. So even there, we're remembering the eternal purposes of God. Uh, so both of those that maintain daily faithfulness, remember the gospel and remember God's eternal purposes. Daniel 7 will help us certainly with the, with the second half there. Yeah, we have to remember in, in, in chapter 7, it's really sort of the apex of Daniel because it uh, not only does it include the empires and, and the uh, Roman beyond, uh, the beast, but it also includes the Antichrist, also includes the end. I mean, it tells us what's going to happen through the uh, uh, king of king, I mean, the um, uh, ancient of days and, and the son of man. So, it, it's, so then he gets more specific uh, as we move on in Daniel. But so it's really a, a highlight here. And, but again, before we get, uh, you know, we disregard things, even Daniel who knew all this, or this was being revealed, was anxious. And I think he was anxious because it looked pretty scary. The turmoil that was reflected by these beasts, these four beasts. Now, Revelation has a very similar portrayal. The beast comes out of the water, but they're sort of amalgamation of all these empires. But, uh, but Daniel was afraid. He was not afraid personally. I mean, he'd been through a lot. <laughs> you survived the lion's den. I'm not sure you could, you could worry about much else. But he, he knew that somewhere down the road, believers were going to face persecution mm -hmm. for their faith by this little horn. And, and, and so he was, that's why he was anxious. That's why he was alarmed. And he asked the angel, 
what did this mean? So, and, and so going right with where you are, look at verse 15, and this is really the, the, the new part of the text for this week. This is what Fred was referring to, Daniel 7, 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there, this is likely an angel, and asked him the truth concerning all this, so he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Now, just pause here. If, this, if you ever get blinded by the challenging nature of this chapter, if you want to just know a summary of the core of the message of the chapter, it's verses 17 and 18. Absolutely. That's the core message. Four kingdoms are coming. There's going to be a lot of chaos when those kingdoms come. But at the end of the day, the saints receive the kingdom, not just forever, 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 and ever. I remember Randy Alcorn saying, in case we are, we're wondering, this metaphorical <laughs> language here, are we, we're not talking about a literal forever. What if it's just a temporary? No, no, no. We're going to have the kingdom forever. Really? Forever and ever. He puts the language there to say that there's no doubt. This is an eternal kingdom that will re replace these temporary kingdoms of rebellious men. And then verse 19, Daniel wants to zero in on the fourth beast and the horn. I'm, I'm with Daniel. I kind of want to know more about that too. So verse 19, then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with, his, with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, now this is new information right here, as I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Now, I do believe that this verse is teaching. Okay, are you ready? This is not pleasant right here. Okay, it's not a pleasant thought. I do think this is what Scripture teaches. Immediately preceding the return of Christ, there will be a massive intensification of persecution of Christians in this world. And I believe this passage is one of several that speak of this. Let me read it one more time. Verse 21. As I looked, this horn, we believe that's the Antichrist, made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. So again, this is something all Christians should be ready for if we do live to see that day, knowing that persecution uh, will be part of what precedes the return of Christ. Thoughts on this section? Yeah, one of the things I would say, coming back to 18 again real, real quick, and then I'll, I'll get to that 22, but let me just read 18 again. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. I mean, that is just so, so good. Just exactly what Mark is saying. Like, there's any doubt. It's three evers. It's just amazing. So, again, big picture would be, uh, thinking about the beastly rule is, uh, it's terrible, it's terrifying, but another T word, it's temporary. Like, it's, it's a great thing to draw from that. They're, they're, they're going to come to an end. It may get worse and worse. It is going to get worse and worse, according to 22, but it's going to be temporary. And so, we, again, we should live in light of this. As bad as it may be, it's a temporary thing. And, but the Son of Man's reign is going to be heavenly and it's eternal. Like, that's, again, that perspective will, will help us. And, and Vody Bakum was so good on this. He said, serve like you know you have another kingdom to which you belong. So, we have an eternal kingdom which we belong. Our citizenship is in heaven. So, we should serve in light of that reality, knowing that this is, 
these things are temporal, but that verse 22 about how uh, it's gonna, it says, until the ancient of days come, no, 21, as I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. And I think what Papa Fred is saying, how Daniel is so troubled, I think this is why he's so troubled. Mm-hmm. He's not even going to live through this likely, and he knows it, but he's troubled for the saints who are going to have to walk through this. He has this almost like a pastoral concern. I never even thought about that until reading Ferguson, but he has this pastoral concern for the saints in the future. And I was thinking, trying to think like application for us today, what, what would that look like? Well, I was thinking about our children. I was thinking, now it may not happen in our children's lifetime, but I think we, we want our kids to come to know the Savior. All these kids at our church, we want to pray for them consistently and want them to see them come to, to Jesus. But then, if they're going to be Christians growing up in like 20 years from now, they, they may face far worse than what we face. I thought we should all have this pastoral concern for the children that, I mean, they may walk through something much worse than we have. So there should be this, like basically Ferguson was saying, if we don't respond like this, like Daniel did, like we've missed the heart of the message in, in one sense. Are we responding like this, having this heart for people who are going to live beyond us, we should have a pastoral concern and love and even praying for, for our children to come to know the Savior, but praying that they would be faithful no matter where, you know, God has, maybe, when they face maybe much worse persecution than we, than we will. Mm. That's, that's really a, uh, I mean, that should motivate us. I mean, that's, I mean, you, you, and Daniel, see, Daniel sets this example for us. Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they set the standard. They stood up to uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and, and, and they were um, exonerated for standing up. But they didn't go against their God and, their, and, and, and the book. Um, one thing in, in 19 that I, I want to ask you guys, because, you know, when you read Scripture, you, you, you've had this experience where you read something, you read something, you read, and suddenly something jumps out, and you've never seen it before, and yet you've read it many times. In 19, in describing this beast um, with his teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and, and I, this, I, I looked at that and I said, you know, the bronze, again, that was Alexander the Great. And I thought maybe a description, and you don't have to get this specific about any of these beasts, but you remember Alexander, even though he died at 32, he conquered the known world, everything the Medo-Persians conquered and then some. But he also introduced the Greek language and Hellenism which was a way of life which transcended even the Roman way of life. The Romans adopted many of the mm-hmm. Greek norms and cultures. So I, I don't know if that's what that means or not, because uh, no, nowhere else nor the commentaries does it specify the bronze. What, what the cle- uh, claws of bronze are. Because in the statue, the statue had feet of iron and clay. It was a mixture. Now we got claws. We got a claw now right. rather than a feet, a foot. <laughs> no, that's a good point, Papa. And I wish I could answer that question. I don't know the answer to that question. That's a great question. Let, let's continue here with verse 30, uh, 23. Excuse me, 23. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion And the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. 
His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Okay, one thing to mention I don't think we have mentioned yet. If you look back at verse 13 of chapter 7 in the original vision, who is it that comes to the Ancient of Days and receives the kingdom? It is one like a son of man. Now, there's no question Jesus saw himself as the fulfillment of this, right? His number one title for himself was Son of Man. And at the Sanhedrin, on the morning of his crucifixion, they said, are you, tell us plainly, are you the Christ? And Jesus says, I am. And you will see me, uh, you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming with the clouds of heaven. Well, the Son of Man comes with the clouds of heaven here to receive a kingdom. Jesus clearly is referring to this is him. This is Jesus coming to God the Father to receive the kingdom. But here's something interesting. Jesus is the one receiving the kingdom in the first half of the chapter in the vision. The Son of Man receives the kingdom. In the second half of the chapter, who is receiving the kingdom? Well, the saints are receiving the kingdom. And this is one of those beautiful pictures of our union with our, with our Savior, the Messiah, Jesus. Because Jesus, of course, is the one who earns the kingdom. He is the one who has every right to the kingdom. He is the truly righteous one who is the true heir of the kingdom. So the kingdom is not ours, it is his. First of all, it is the kingdom of the Son of Man. And he will take that kingdom from God the Father. But hell-deserving sinners like us, who have been rescued from our sins and forgiven and made righteous because of Christ, because we are unified with Christ. We are in the Messiah. We are, we are in Christ. Because of that, the kingdom is just as much going to be given to us, right? We are, the, the, the kingdom will be given to the saints forever, forever and ever because we are saints. We are holy in the Son of Man. We are in the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. Any thoughts on his representation of us in this passage? I'll just say one thing on that. We're quoting that passage that I mentioned earlier. He, he said this, in the end, to our amazement, in verse 27, the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to whom? To us, to the church, to the people of the saints of the Most High. How can we not marvel? God meant for this to give great comfort to his people through Daniel in exile 2,500 years ago. Despite your present circumstances and regardless of appearances, God is in control. He rules and he will humble and destroy all human kingdoms precisely when he decides and give the everlasting kingdom to his son and his people with him. I mean, do we ever read Daniel 7? Do we ever marvel at this truth? Like, I just thought, what a great word to use. We, we should marvel at this. Like, if we really lived in light of that, and we're going to get the kingdom with the Son of Man, it would make a huge difference about how we would pursue faithfulness if we knew that what is to come. Uh, so, yeah, we, we need Daniel 7. It's so, I just amazed. Like, the Bible is so relevant for today. It's written so long ago, and yet, we should, if we come and chew on it, it will make an impact on our lives for sure. This is the first verse, or the only verse that I know of in Daniel, where the saints are mentioned, and, uh, again, shall, shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom, like you said, forever and ever and ever. That is the, that is the good news. I mean, that is something to, to jump up and down and say hallelujah about in the midst of all this turmoil and, and persecution and uh, concern. So. Turn with me to the New Testament, to 1 John. I just want to look at a few different New Testament passages that I think are building off Daniel 7. 1 John 2, I've mentioned a couple of these very briefly, but I think reading this in context could be helpful. So 1 John 2, near the back of your Bible, starting in verse 18. And listen, this is written around the year 90 AD, and he's already saying this is the last hour. Because he's thinking, we are here, we are in the end times all the way from Christ's first to his second coming. 1 John 2.18. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come already in the first century. 
Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us. I believe this means they left the church. But they were not of us. For had they been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Now, let me just pause here. That is one of the most significant verses in the whole Bible about eternal security. Can you lose your salvation? Verse 19 says, if someone was part of us, they were part of a church, they were no doubt baptized, professing members of churches. They, they, were, they were professing Christ. They then, what? They abandoned their faith. They left the people of God. They, they went away. And John says, if they had been truly of us, they would have what? They would have continued with us. But their going out proved that they were never really part of us. And so people who so-called lose their salvation or fall away from the faith, John would say they never truly had saving faith in the first place. They were simply uh, deceived to some degree at that point. Verse 20, but you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. And this is essential knowledge about the gospel. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. That's the gospel message. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Now let's, let's turn to Second John, a, a less frequently read part of the New Testament, perhaps. I'm just going to read a chunk here. It's, it's hard not to read the whole thing. It's so short. But I'm going to read a portion of 2 John. And listen to, listen to the contrast, because Antichrist this is the only other book of the Bible that the word Antichrist appears. First and 2 John, the only places where the actual word Antichrist is used in the Bible explicitly. But listen to the contrast between truth and deception. Okay, listen to the contrast between truth and deception. 2 John 1. The elder to the elect lady and her children. I believe that refers to a local church. The elect lady and her children. Whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth. Because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. Just as you were commanded by the Father. Skip to verse 7. Why is he so into truth? Verse 7, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone, listen, this is so similar to the other passage. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. So why this is so relevant for us is antichrists, plural, are those who teach against the biblical Jesus. That is relevant everywhere we go all the time. Anyone who is teaching against Christ is, and I wouldn't necessarily say this in my first conversation with those people, I wouldn't bring this up, but if you're against Christ, guess what you are? You're anti-Christ. That, that's what that word means. And so there are many deceivers in the world from the first century till now, and anyone who denies the, 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 that Jesus came in the flesh is acting in the spirit of the Antichrist. So we need to be aware of the false teaching that comes with that. Thoughts on that? 
the first century, uh, by the time John was writing, particularly, and I think earlier than that, because Paul gave us some hints at that, but uh, particularly by the time of John, the Gnosticism had, had uh, raised its head and, and denied all these tenets, mm-hmm. denied who Jesus was, that he was the Christ, the Son of God. In fact, there's this famous story, and I, I'm going to get it wrong because I can't remember all the details, but uh, uh, John the Apostle was actually in a bathhouse in Ephesus. Um, I guess that was the thing to do. And, and Serentius, uh, who was a famous Gnostic, was there. And John threw on his cloak and ran out because he, he didn't want to be associated with a, uh, a harbinger of lies, according to John. So, Let me take it to one more text. 1 John 4, so just back to the left, uh, maybe one page or so. 1 John 4 is the uh, one last text here to, to see these concepts put together by John. First verse of the chapter. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming, and now is in the world already. The spirit of Antichrist is in the world already. Verse 4, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So again, this idea of deception and false teaching versus true and healthy biblical teaching, that is relevant with this topic of the Antichrist. Any other thoughts on that? All right, let's shift back to the very end. We just got a couple minutes left here, a few minutes left. Back to Daniel chapter 7. Anything else in the chapter that you guys would like to cover as we come to a close here? Well, one of the things I would say, again, I'm coming back to that vision that, that he gets of God on the throne of the Son of Man. It reminded me, it reminded me of multiple things, but one of the things it reminded me of, it reminded me of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. He, he gives that sermon, or at least portion of a sermon. He didn't, gets kind of cut off. You preached on it maybe a little over a year ago. And then the people, like, they are furious at him. They grind their teeth at him, and then they're going to charge at him. And in that moment, what does Daniel do? He looks up. R.C. Sproul was so funny on that. He said, if he was there and people were grinding his teeth at him, he said, I'd be looking for the nearest exit, trying to get out of there as fast as I could. He said, not Stephen. Stephen looks up, which is a great practical thing. We look away from our trials. We look to God. And he looks up and God gives him this wonderful vision. He sees, like, he sees the Son of Man. He says the Son of Man. Daniel 7 language. He said, behold, I see the Son of Man. It's one of the only times Son of Man is used in the New Testament. By somebody by, else. By uh, someone other than other Jesus. Than Jesus, yeah. He says the Son of Man standing at the, at the right hand of the throne of God. And it's, this, it's, it's like a Daniel 7 vision. And, but Jesus is standing up, and people say he's standing up maybe to welcome uh, Stephen home, or he's standing up to say, I agree with Stephen, like against, against the, the people about to kill him. But I think part of the, why he's faithful to the very end is it's got to be for this vision. He gets this vision, and then what does he do? Like, he, he prays for those persecuting him. And with his very last breath, let me just read it uh, in Acts 7, his very last breath, uh, Acts 7, verse 60, and falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. It's just, it's beautiful, but you have to, part of that faithfulness to the end was from this vision of, of the Son of Man standing uh, next to the throne of God. So again, I think the practical thing, pull away, is we want to get this vision before us again and again. I think it will help produce just ordinary faithfulness when, when we have this vision that Daniel got here before us. And I think that in verse 28, that pastoral concern we, we should have for the saints in the future, especially our children, praying, how, how are we I'm praying they come to faith, but are we praying 
Lord, Lord, keep them faithful when they face persecution. I've got one last thing, and then we'll be done. Turn with me. I know it's a lot of passages today. Go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I know we've read it a few months ago, but this is, again, very relevant. I think Paul is definitely building off some of the concepts in Daniel 7 about the Antichrist figure. And let me just read the passage, and then we can, we can close in prayer. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Sounds just like just the little horn from Daniel 7. Absolutely. Verse 5, do, not, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For, li listen again, for the mystery of lawlessness is what? It's already at work. This is the same, the spirit of Antichrist is already here. The mystery of the man of lawlessness, that, that spirit is already at work now. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Scott, can you close us in prayer? Yeah, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are, uh, as that one pastor said, so thankful for the, the rock of your word. We're so thankful for the certainty, the truth of your word that we have in, in troubled times, in times of suffering, in times where the culture, even before us, seems to be degrading worse and worse. We have your word uh, that is trustworthy through and through, that we can go to and we can find strength from. And I, I just pray that we would uh, make use of the word, that we would delight to spend time with you in the, in the word. Uh, thank you for Daniel 7. What an amazing chapter uh, that it can be so easily neglected, but I pray that we would see the practical benefits of studying it. And uh, what a great passage that we can see the, the future. We know it's certain. We know that there's, this little horn is going to come. It's going to be awful for the saints alive at that time. Uh, but we know that he, he's going he's to be thrown into the, to the fire and uh, that uh, the Son of Man's kingdom is going to reign forever, forever and ever. And for all who are believers in Jesus, we get to be a part of that. We, we get to it's a, it's a marvelous thing, an incredible thing. And how can we uh, inherit the kingdom with the Son of Man? It's because Christ has died for us. Uh, he's been crucified for us. He's, he's been risen, and uh, He has ascended, and he's, he's returning. So help us to live in light of the gospel and a lot of these glorious realities that are to come. And Father, I do pray that we would have a pastoral concern and heart for, for saints in the future who, have to, who may face uh, horrible things. And, and we do pray for the children in our church. We pray that they all would come to know you in a saving way and that they would just be faithful to you wherever you take them, wherever you lead them, that they would be faithful uh, and, and strong and men and women of the word. And uh, we pray for the service upcoming that you'd be at work through the singing and the teaching and your people would be built up. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you all for being flexible to be in here today in the sanctuary. Lord willing, we'll be back in the gym for Sunday school uh, next Sunday. And real quick, we will not have any Sunday schools meet on Easter Sunday. So on the 17th, there will be no Sunday schools at all. And so just be aware of that. Thank you.